Good afternoon. Josh Shapiro, honored to serve as Pennsylvania's Attorney General. And I'm here, finally, to announce the results of a two-year grand jury investigation into widespread sexual abuse of children within the Catholic Church and the systematic cover-up by senior church officials in Pennsylvania and at the Vatican. The investigation involved dozens of dedicated teammates, agents, and lawyers of mine in the Office of Attorney General. Their commitment, know-how, and compassion is truly inspiring. Our team was led by three extraordinary prosecutors. Michelle Henry, our first Deputy Attorney General, Executive Deputy Attorney General Jennifer Selber, and of course, Senior Deputy Attorney General Dan Dye. I also want to thank a special unit within the FBI whose assistance was indispensable to our investigation. Over the last several months, an intense legal battle has played out between my office and individuals who have concealed their identities through sealed court filings. These petitioners, and for a time, some of the diocese, sought to prevent the entire report from ever seeing the light of day. In effect, they wanted to cover up the cover-up. They sought to do the same thing that senior church leaders in the diocese we investigated have done for decades. Bury the sexual abuse by priests upon children and cover it up forever. Shamefully, <laughs> these petitioners still don't have the courage to tell the public who they are. Moments ago, an 884-page report issued unanimously by the 40th statewide investigative grand jury, the largest, most comprehensive report into child sexual abuse within the Catholic Church ever produced in the United States was released. It builds on the Boston Globe's Spotlight Report, which identified 229 abuser priests. The 2005 Philadelphia Grand Jury Report into the Archdiocese, which identified over 60 abuser priests. And the 2016 Altoona Johnstown investigation conducted by the Office of Attorney General, which named at least 50 abuser priests. The report published today, in accordance with the July 27th Pennsylvania Supreme Court order has some redactions. Let me be very clear. My office is not satisfied with the release of a redacted report. Every redaction represents an incomplete story of abuse that deserves to be told. We have oral argument scheduled in front of the Pennsylvania Supreme Court for September the 26th. And you can be certain that we will fight vigorously to remove every redaction and tell every story of abuse and expose every cover-up. While those redactions represent just a very small fraction of the predator priests named by this grand jury, no story of abuse is any less important than another. Today, Pennsylvanians can learn the extent of sexual abuse in these dioceses. And for the first time, we can begin to understand 
the systematic cover-up by church leaders that followed. As the members of the grand jury wrote in their report, we need you to hear this. There have been other reports about child sex abuse within the Catholic Church, but never on this scale. For many of us, those earlier stories happened someplace else. Now we know the truth. It happened everywhere. This lengthy report was written by 23 committed grand jurors based on extensive testimony and documentation. It goes into great detail about widespread sexual abuse and cover-up within the Catholic Church. I respectfully ask for your patience as I walk you through the contents of this report. And while I will endeavor to give a full accounting of the report so that you get a full picture of what transpired in the shadows over decades, nothing I can say in the time we have together today will do full justice to the two years of work done by these grand jurors. I ask that you take the time to read the report. This painful body of facts and documents contained in it, which is now posted on the Office of Attorneys General website. Now I will lay out the following. The unprecedented scope of this investigation. The abuse, diocese by diocese charges resulting from this grand jury investigation, the systematic cover-up by church leaders, the weaponization of faith, the failure of law enforcement, and finally, the recommendations of the grand jury. The grand jury investigated six dioceses, Allentown, Harrisburg, Pittsburgh, Greensburg, Erie, and Scranton. Their work built on previous grand jury investigations into the Diocese of Philadelphia and Altoona Johnstown and paints a complete picture of abuse and cover-up in every diocese in Pennsylvania. The grand jury investigation began about two years ago because we realized during the Altoona Johnstown investigation that the abuse and cover-up was not just limited to that region, but it was pervasive throughout the entire Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. Dozens of witnesses testified before the grand jury detailing acts of sexual abuse by priests and how senior church officials covered up their criminal conduct, prioritizing their institution over the safety and welfare of these young boys and girls. The grand jury subpoenaed and, re and reviewed a half a million pages of documents, internal church documents and official records. The abuse scarred every diocese. The cover-up was sophisticated. And all the while, church leadership kept records of the abuse and the cover-up. These documents from the diocese's own secret archives formed the backbone of this investigation, corroborating accounts of victims and illustrating the organized cover-up by senior church officials that stretched in some cases, all the way to the Vatican. The term secret archives is not my term. It is how the church officials themselves referred to the troves of documents sitting in filing cabinets, just feet from the bishop's desks. In each diocese, the bishops had the key to the secret archives, which contained both allegations 
and admissions of the abuse and the cover-up. The grand jury uncovered credible evidence of sexual abuse against 301 predator priests. As shocking as that number is, the grand jury report notes that the jurors didn't automatically name every priest mentioned in the documents and the secret archives. They actually received files on more than 400 priests, but were careful not to name names if the information was too scanty to make a reasonable determination about what had happened. Over 1,000 child victims were identified by our investigation, though the grand jury notes that they believe that number was in the thousands. As the report reads, we should emphasize that while the list of priests is long, we don't think we got them all. We feel certain that many victims never came forward and that the diocese did not create written records every single time they heard something about abuse, the grand jurors wrote. As I detail the grand jury's findings, I will use graphic language from the report that may make some uncomfortable. But these words are the only way to adequately explain the sexual abuse committed by priests upon children. This, this is not to be salacious. It is to share the truth, to keep a promise I made to these victims that I would, in their words, talk about what this abuse actually was and not rely on the euphemisms that church officials used for decades to cover it up. You see, church officials routinely and purposefully described the abuse as horseplay and wrestling and inappropriate contact. It was none of those things. It was child sexual abuse, including rape, committed by grown men, priests, against children. Above all else, they protected their institution at all cost. As the grand jury found, the church showed a complete disdain for victims. In the Diocese of Erie, the grand jury named 41 priests who sexually abused children. One priest in Erie, Father Chester Goronsky fondled boys and told them he was doing so to perform a cancer check. In 1987, after complaints were filed against him, Goronsky provided the diocese with a list of 41 possible victims. He confirmed at least 12 children he had performed this cancer check on. He had freely confessed to multiple instances of sexual abuse. Yet from 1987 until 2002, 15 years, Goronsky remained in active ministry and repeatedly was reassigned to new parishes. In the Diocese of Allentown, the grand jury named 37 priests who sexually abused children. Please help me. I sexually molested a boy, one priest, Michael Lawrence, admitted to Monsignor Anthony Montone. Montone noted the confession in a handwritten confidential memo. Even after the admission by the priest, 
the diocese actually ruled this experience will not necessarily be a horrendous trauma for the victim. And all the family needed was the opportunity to ventilate. And so, Father Lawrence, the admitted child molester, was left in ministry for years by three different bishops. In the Diocese of Greensburg, the grand jury named 20 priests who sexually abused children. One priest, Father Raymond Lukak, impregnated a 17-year-old girl, forged another pastor's signature on a marriage certificate, then divorced the girl shortly after she gave birth. Despite having sex with a minor, fathering a child, and being married and divorced, Father Lukak was allowed to stay in ministry while the diocese sought a benevolent bishop in another state willing to take the predator, hiding him from justice. In the Diocese of Harrisburg, the grand jury named 45 priests who sexually abused children. One priest, Father Joe Pease, sexually assaulted a boy repeatedly when the boy was between 13 and 15. Pease admitted to diocese officials to finding the victim naked upstairs one time in the rectory, but said it was all just horseplay and nothing sexual occurred. At this point, we are at an impasse, allegations and no admission, the diocese wrote in one of those secret memos before cycling this predator through church-run treatment and allowing him back into active ministry for seven more years. In the Diocese of Pittsburgh, the grand jury named 99 priests who sexually abused children. A group of at least four predator priests in Pittsburgh groomed and violently sexually assaulted young boys. One boy was forced to stand on a bed in a rectory, stripped naked, and pose as Christ on the cross for the priests. They took photos of their victim, adding them to a collection of child pornography which they produced and shared on church grounds. To make it easier to target their victims, the priests gave their favored boys gifts, gold crosses to wear as necklaces, the crosses were markings of which boys had been groomed for abuse. The grand jury saw one of those gold crosses when one of the victims of the Pittsburgh priests testified. In the Diocese of Scranton, the grand jury named 59 priests who sexually abused children. A diocese priest, Thomas Skotek, raped a young girl, got her pregnant, and then that priest arranged for an abortion. Bishop James Timlin expressed his feelings in a letter. He wrote, this is a very difficult time in your life and I realize how upset you are. I too share your grief. Except the bishop's letter was not for the girl. The bishop wrote that letter to the rapist. Just these few examples of those contained in the report demonstrate starkly similar corrupt and unconscionable abuse. The pattern was abuse, deny, and cover up. The effect not only victimized children, it served a legal purpose that church officials manipulated for their advantage. The longer they covered it up, the less chance law enforcement could prosecute these predators because the statute of limitations would run. 
as a direct consequence of the systematic cover-up by senior church officials, almost every instance of child sexual abuse we found is too old to be prosecuted, but not every instance. The grand jury issued presentments and we filed charges against a priest in Greensburg and a priest in Erie who sexually assaulted children. In Greensburg, we charged Father John Sweeney with sexually abusing a seven-year-old boy. Sweeney pled guilty earlier this month. He is now an admitted sexual predator. In Erie, we charged Father David Polson with sexually abusing one boy for eight years, starting when he was just eight years old. He actually made the boy go to confession to admit, to admit his sins to Polson himself. The bishop at the time, Donald Troutman, knew all about this abuse, and Troutman covered it up. As a result of the previous grand jury in Altoona, Johnstown, two Franciscan friars admitted it, they endangered the welfare of minors, covering up sexual assaults by a fellow friar. So this grand jury, and the one that preceded it, did not just write reports, they recommended charges where they legally could, and we followed through. We all wish more charges could be filed, but due to the church's manipulation of our weak laws in Pennsylvania, too many predators were out of reach. The cover-up made it impossible to achieve justice for the victims. Church leaders in every one of the six dioceses handled complaints of sexual abuse the same way for decades, by covering it up. The grand jurors wrote, all of the victims were brushed aside in every part of the state by church leaders who preferred to protect the abusers and their institutions above all. Priests were rape, raping little boys and girls, and the men of God who were responsible for them not only did nothing, they hid it all for decades. Monsignors, auxiliary bishops, bishops, archbishops, cardinals have mostly been protected. Many, including some named in this report, have been promoted. Father Schlert, identified in the report, is now Bishop Schlert. Bishop Whirl is now Cardinal Whirl. Father Zubik is now Bishop Zubik. Predator priests were allowed to remain in ministry for 10, 20, even 40 years after church leaders learned of their crimes. In those years, their lists of victims got longer and longer. There are simply too many examples of the cover-up to share right now. All are documented in that grand jury report. But let me share just two examples that show the lengths to which the Catholic Church would go to cover it up. The first case is an example of a corrupt bishop putting the institution ahead of its flock's well-being and repeatedly lying about it. The Diocese of Erie knew Father William Presley was sexually abusing at least two minors as early as 1987. Instead of reporting it to police, diocesan officials held meetings with Presley to review the complaints. They noted that he never denied the allegations. Despite that, they concluded Presley's victims were troubled and had psychological problems. The diocese chose to send Presley for evaluation by a doctor and then placed him right back in ministry. After the child sex abuse scandal erupted in the Boston Archdiocese in 2002, 
three separate victims notified Bishop Troutman of their abuse at the hands of Presley, which is detailed in the report. Troutman spoke with Presley, who admitted the abuse. Then, 15 years after the Erie Diocese first learned Presley was a predator, the bishop finally revoked Presley's priestly faculties. After Presley's removal, responding to press inquiries about Presley, the diocese issued a comment saying it knew of only one abuse allegation and had, quote, no information to provide on other possible allegations against Presley. The diocese lied. Bishop Troutman had personal knowledge of at least three victims who had reported their abuse to him. There was only one entity that Bishop Troutman apparently was honest with, the Vatican. The bishop privately detailed the abuse to Vatican officials in 2003, writing, it, quote, confirms my suspicion that there are even more victims of the sexual abuse and exploitation perpetrated by Presley. The diocese and Troutman were telling the public and the faithful one thing, while they were telling the Vatican an entirely different story. Years later, in 2006, Troutman finally chose to report Presley to law enforcement, falsely telling prosecutors that these allegations only came to light a few years ago. The grand jury found this report to law enforcement was another lie. The truth is, Troutman and the Diocese of Erie intentionally waited out the statute of limitations and curbed their own investigation to avoid finding additional victims. The next case highlights the horrendous abuse perpetrated by one abuser priest on an entire family and a diocese disregard by doing nothing to investigate the abuse for years despite knowing of credible allegations against the priest. Over a 10-year period, the priest, Gus Giella, sexually abused five sisters from the same family. The family of nine siblings was very involved with the church. Giella met his victims when the girls came to the rectory to help count collections. Giella began sexually abusing one of the sisters, Carolyn, when she was just 18 months old. His abuse continued until she was 12. You saw Carolyn earlier in that powerful video. In 1987, a teacher at Dauphin County's Bishop McDevitt High School reported to the principal that Giella was watching a young girl as she used the bathroom. The principal reported it to the diocese and it was noted in their secret archive, along with information that Giella was engaging in similar conduct with one of the five sisters from the same family. A memorandum in the church's secret archive about Giella's abuse concluded the high school principal was instructed to do nothing in the case until the matter had been discussed with the diocesan legal counsel. Over the next five years, the diocese took no action to remove Giella from ministry, chose not to inform law enforcement, the family, or parishioners. Instead, they chose to knowingly allow him to continue to sexually abuse these girls. 1992, the youngest victim of the family told her parents what Giella had been doing. And the family reported the conduct to the diocese 
and law enforcement. Police served a search warrant on Giella's home and confiscated a young girl's panties, plastic containers with pubic hairs identified by initials, vials of urine, and photos of girls in sexually explicit positions. Giella was arrested in 1992, more than a decade after he started abusing children. Father Giella never faced a jury for his crimes. He died awaiting trial. The mother of the girls abused by Giella testified before the grand jury. She said she confronted church officials, Monsignor Overbaugh, when she learned of Giella's years of abusing his daughters. In response, she said the Monsignor told her, I wondered why you were letting them go to the rectory. The grand jury concluded Giella's tragic abuse of these girls could have been stopped much earlier if the Diocese of Harrisburg had acted on the original complaint. The family of the sisters abused by this predator have never been able to tell their story until today. They were gagged from speaking by a confidentiality agreement insisted on by the diocese in exchange for settling their claims against the church. Instead of helping these girls heal, they paid for their silence. These women no longer need to be silenced. Today, the grand jury finally gives this family of victims their voice. Predators in every diocese weaponized the Catholic faith and used it as a tool of their abuse. Father William Presley gave a boy sedatives to relax him before his abuse, then told him it was okay because he was a priest. Father Edmund Paraco told altar boys not to wear any clothing underneath their cassocks because God didn't want clothes on their skin as they served mass. Father Robert Mosliner groomed his middle school students for oral sex by telling them how Mary had to lick Jesus clean after he was born. Father Arthur Long told his young victim as he pressured her to have sex, God wants us to express our love for each other in this way. Father Ed Graff told a seventh grader he abused that what they were doing was okay because the priest was an instrument of God. Monsignor Thomas Benestad made a nine-year-old give him oral sex, then rinsed the boy's mouth out with holy water to purify him. These children, children surrounded by adults enabling their abuse, were taught that this abuse was not only normal, but that it was holy. The church was not the only institution that failed children. The grand jury also found several instances where law enforcement let them down. Here's just one example. In the Diocese of Pittsburgh, District Attorney Robert Masters of Beaver County reported to church leadership concerned about an abuse investigation involving one of his priests that, quote, in order to prevent unfavorable publicity, he halted all investigations into incidents involving other young boys. District Attorney Masters actually testified to the grand jury that his reason for failing to investigate and prosecute the sexual abuse case against a priest was that he wanted the diocese support for his political career. I've described for you only some 
of the abuse and extensive cover-up. But the findings in this report would be incomplete without discussing how this abuse has affected survivors years after the abuse has ended. Child sexual abuse is traumatizing. In these cases, there is an additional layer of trauma because the abuse came at the hands of their spiritual leaders. Instead of healing, victims were shamed. They were ridiculed. When these children told authority figures of their abuse, their accounts were questioned and they were hushed and shunned. When a young boy ran into a police station in Scranton after his priest attempted to assault him, he told the grand jury that the on-duty officer said, I don't want to know anything about this. I just want you to get out of here. When one victim in Allentown told a priest of her abuse, he said to her, I don't want to hear it. You go to confession and you pray for him. When another victim of the same abuser priest tried to tell another clergyman, that clergyman said, don't say the name. For the record, the name is Father Francis Fromholzer. One victim, despite being assaulted by a Monsignor, still felt so strongly about his faith that he himself became a priest. But after feeling that church superiors continued to ignore child sexual abuse, he left his calling. He now advocates for survivors. The impact especially when kept secret, lasts a lifetime. The time of telling these victims to keep their truth to themselves has ended. <laughs> Unlike the Catholic Church and some in law enforcement, we hear you and we believe your truth. I want to thank the many victim support groups, including the Pennsylvania Office of Victim Advocate, for the work they do every single day to support survivors and their assistance throughout this process. Several dozen survivors are here with us today, each with a story of lifelong impact from their abuse. But let me tell you about just one of them, whose story is sadly not unique. Joey Behe. Joey was a seven-year-old boy from the Diocese of Allentown. He was repeatedly raped by Father Edward Graff, a priest who, according to the grand jury, raped scores of children over 35 years. Father Graff was a physically imposing man and an alcoholic. When he attacked Joey, he bore down on his back with such force that Joey's spine was severely damaged. Joey received treatment for this back injury and eventually became addicted to painkillers that the doctors had prescribed him. He ultimately overdosed and died. Before he died, Joey wrote to the Diocese of Allentown, Father Graff did more than rape me, Joey wrote. He killed my potential, and in doing so, killed the man that I should have become. Joey's mom, Judy, is here today. She testified before the grand jury. She said they never admitted to anything happening. It was like he was trying to prove his entire life what had happened, 
and that he was telling the truth. They never admitted. They never said there was abuse. I promised Joey's mom that we wouldn't forget Joey. The abuse did happen. The grand jurors believed Joey. Joey's trauma led to his death. For thousands of other victims, trauma manifests itself in many different ways. Some were left with speech problems, uncontrollable stuttering. Many turned to alcohol and drugs to escape the memories of their abuse. Some were unable to ever have normal sexual relationships, have children, or show physical affection to those they love. You heard Bob and Sean speak about that in the video earlier. Many attempted suicide. Sadly, many were successful. During the grand jury's deliberations, one victim who testified before the grand jury tried to kill herself. From her hospital bed, she asked for one thing, that we finish our work and tell the world what really happened. For many of the victims, this grand jury report is justice. The grand jurors felt a responsibility to expose the abuse and make recommendations to ensure that something like this never happens again. In their words, we are going to shine a light on their conduct because that is what the victims deserve. And we're gonna make our recommendations for how the laws should change so that no one will have to conduct another inquiry like this one. We exercise our historical and statutory right as grand jurors to inform the public of our findings. The report continues. We can't charge most of the culprits. What we can do is tell our fellow citizens what happened and try to get something done about it. Here are the four reforms that the grand jury recommends to prevent this type of abuse from happening again and care for victims. First, eliminate the criminal statute of limitations for sexually abusing children. Child sexual predators should no longer be able to hide behind a criminal statute of limitations. Thanks to a recent amendment, the current law permits victims to come forward until age 50. That's better than it was before, but still not good enough, according to the grand jury. Given the physical and emotional trauma that sexual abuse victims undergo, it is well documented that the process of telling someone about their abuse can take years or even decades. Justice for these victims should not be denied. Pennsylvania lawmakers should send a clear message and empower law enforcement agencies to hunt down all future child predators no matter how long they live. Second, the grand jury urges lawmakers to create a civil window in Pennsylvania so that older victims may now sue for damages from when their bodies were defiled as children. The law in place now gives child sex abuse victims 12 years to sue once they turn 18. But victims in their 30s or older fall under a different law. They get only two years. For victims in this age range, the window for them to sue expired back in the 1990s, long before revelations about the institutional nature of sexual abuse within the church. This is unacceptable. The grand jury proposal would open up a limited window, offering abuse survivors a chance, finally, to be heard in court. All we're asking 
is to give victims those two years back, the grand jurors wrote. I've spent time with dozens of victims, those here today and those across Pennsylvania. Not one has ever expressed a desire for compensation when they came forward and shared their truth. But they shouldn't have to go without means to pay for the counseling and substance abuse treatment and other assistance they need to fight the demons inflicted upon them by the church. Several other states have legally created windows for victims to sue. This report demonstrates the need for this reform in Pennsylvania. This has actually been debated in the halls of the General Assembly in the past, but so far, the interests of the church and the insurance lobby have triumphed over the needs of victims. Given the findings of this grand jury, such a position should no longer be tenable. Heed the words of the grand jurors, trust the victims, adopt this reform. Third, the grand jury recommends that the penalties for a continuing failure to report child abuse be clarified. We can't pass laws telling the church how to administer internal operations, but we can demand that it inform authorities about rapists and molesters, wrote the grand jury. They recommended fixing the law, which currently creates a legal gray area around an abuser being, quote, active or not. And if their repeated instances of abuse are targeted at the same child or many children, the new language should impose a continuing obligation to report quote, while the person knows or has reasonable cause to believe that the abuser is likely to commit additional acts of child abuse. Fourth and finally, they believe that civil confidentiality agreements should not cover communications with law enforcement. Confidentiality agreements between victims and the church were usually written to make the victim afraid of talking to anyone at all. Victims assume they can't even talk to the police. This is not true. And church officials use this as a tool to silence victims and protect the institution. The grand jury is recommending that this be made crystal clear, proposing a new statute that no past or present non-disclosure agreement prevents a victim from talking to law enforcement. Additionally, they recommend the statute should require that future agreements must plainly state the contact with police about criminal activity is permitted. The diocese have issued many public statements in recent times. They claim to have changed their ways. They claim to have put appropriate safeguards in place and no longer have tolerance for sexual abuse of any kind. Statements are one thing. The proof of their claims will be if they support each of the four grand jury recommendations. So on behalf of the grand jurors, I issue the following clear challenge to every Pennsylvania bishop and the archbishop in each diocese. Adopt and support each and every one of these recommendations and to Pennsylvania law right now adopt and support each of these recommended reforms to Pennsylvania law right now. Stand up today, right now, and announce your support for these 
common sense reforms. That is the real test that will determine whether or not things have really changed or if it'll just be business as usual after the dust settles. I want to single out Bishop Persico of Erie for his public actions recently, signaling a new way forward for the church to respond to the sexual abuse scandal. His response to this crisis actually gives me some hope. While some bishops it submitted written statements, Bishop Persico was the only one to testify before the grand jury in person. He told the grand jury the mishandling of complaints by his predecessors made him angry and that he wanted to do the right thing. He did. I want to sincerely thank the men and women of the grand jury who traveled long distances several days every month for two years of their lives to listen to heartbreaking testimony and ultimately issue this report. These 23 fellow Pennsylvanians listened to accounts of horrific sexual abuse of victims by priests, and they reached a unanimous set of conclusions in approving this report. We owe them a profound debt of gratitude. Your public service was impactful, and you made a difference. On behalf of our entire team in the Office of Attorney General, the victims, and the people of Pennsylvania, I thank each and every one of those 23 grand jurors. My office works to protect children throughout Pennsylvania every single day. We pursue child sexual abuse and institutional cover-up wherever we find it, in places of worship, in schools, in government offices, wherever we find it. In just the past 12 months, our prosecutors have filed charges involving child sexual abuse against a police chief, a deputy county coroner, a pediatrician, and university officials. We also have many active investigations across the Commonwealth. The time for institutions to place their own interests above protecting our children is over. I will not tolerate it. To that end, our investigation into child sexual abuse within the Catholic Church remains ongoing. If you are listening to this news conference and you know of sexual abuse being committed by a priest or a member of clergy against yourself or anyone else, please call us. Our special clergy abuse hotline is 888-538-8541. Words cannot adequately describe these horrors, but the grand jurors, my team of prosecutors and agents and professionals, and these survivors reveal a clear picture of abuse and cover-up. These predator priests were allowed to thrive in darkness for decades, but sunshine is a powerful disinfectant. There were two primary goals outlined by the grand jurors, to disclose the abuse and to ensure it never happens again. The abuse and cover-up is now publicly disclosed for the people of Pennsylvania to read for themselves. The critical question now is whether elected representatives and church officials will actually listen.